0: Welcome back, my delightful buttercups to Mean Age Daydream. I am Brian McWilliams, and I am joined today for what I think will be a very interesting conversation by Andrew Koppelman. Now, Andrew is a John Paul Stevens professor of law and a professor of political science at Northwestern University and the author of multiple books, including the most recent, which is called Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Andrew, welcome That's to Mean Age Daydream. Happy to be here. Yeah, as I said, I was talking to you earlier, I've not read the book, and I'm sure, you know, the majority of my audience heard the title of that book and went, oh boy. But <laughs> we like, I- I'm curious to hear more about the book. And the idea behind the conversation that I'm going to have with Professor Koppelman today revolves around a... Point that was made to me and, you know, and from your publicist and I gave her credit for getting in touch about your philosophy that government actually is providing for more protections of freedom. And if we took away government, we would have less freedom. Am, am I describing that correctly? Yep. All right. Fantastic. Well, before we dive into that topic, tell me a little bit more about your book. And I will say I take it with a grain of salt because I've become very close friends with several people that are graduates from Northwestern. Obviously, if they're friends with me, it can't be that great of a school. But please tell us about the book.
1: All right. So... uh I got interested in libertarianism because I was writing about the healthcare case in the Supreme Court. I'm a professor of constitutional law and it was a constitutional law case. I thought some very bad arguments were being made by people who thought that there just absolutely had to be certain restraints on the government, uh, even though it didn't say them anywhere in the Constitution. And as I dug deeper into that question, which eventually I wrote a book called The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform, Uh, I thought people were bringing in this libertarian philosophy that wasn't in the constitution. And so I tried to learn, well, what is this philosophy? Where did it come from? And I found that there just wasn't a good general historical introduction to libertarianism out there that was at all critical that sort of explains, you know, so what were the steps? What are the different varieties of libertarianism and where did they come from? Uh, And actually, it turns out that libertarianism comes in many flavors, some more bitter than others. Uh, So as I was uh, learning about the philosophy, I discovered that I actually was more attracted to the consequentialist free market philosophy of Friedrich Hayek than I had expected to be. And I was much more repulsed by Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard and Robert Nozick than I expected to be. And I discovered a much tighter link between this philosophy and the ongoing environmental catastrophe that the human race is facing now via climate change, which is in large part because people with libertarian philosophies managed to keep the United States government from addressing this issue 30 years ago when we knew about it and when the present disaster could have been avoided.
0: All right, so I'm going to refrain from getting into a discussion about climate because uh, I'm not going to go down that path at this mm-hmm. point. Maybe we'll maybe I'll we'll have you okay. back on just to focus on that.
1: <laughs> okay, I guess, I, I, all, all I will say is don't buy beachfront property. It's
0: well, I but investment. yet all of all of our leaders seem to have no problem or qualms in buying beachfront property. That's my that's my issue. But regardless, so I so understandably interesting. So you came to uh, as you said. Partake in more spoonfuls of certain flavors of libertarianism than others. And as you're probably aware, very often within the libertarian community, there is infighting between our many sects of those flavors, and actually, which I think is healthy. And and Mm -hmm. as opposed to maybe some other philosophical or uh, philosophies of politics, I actually think it's a little bit healthy to constantly have that. In fighting it away, because if you believe in steel sharpening steel, it should in turn result in the best ideas coming forward, mm-hmm. the best philosophy being presented to the world. Although as we've seen, our philosophy doesn't necessarily, in my opinion, have as much emphasis, as much weight as I think you feel. So I wanted to ask you in regards to the book, you feel that libertarianism has, in fact, infiltrated politics, infiltrated our regulatory environment, I think, to a much greater degree than somebody like me would. So I'm curious to hear a a little bit more about that before we dive into the meat of uh, the freedom issue.
1: Well, I mean, another large example is, uh, as we are recording this on May 16th, uh, there is a serious danger that the world economy is going to go into depression if the federal government defaults on its debts. And the reason why the federal government might default on its debts is there is a powerful faction in Congress that wants absolutely massive cuts. Uh, They won't say exactly what they are, but they really think that if there are, Massive cuts that it will make us freer. And, you know, we've seen the consequences of those cuts in the past. The other uh, big cut from the last Republican administration that really wanted to find something to cut and quite a lot of the things you could cut were politically protected. They cut the pandemic response to They cut the capacity to deal with a pandemic because uh, if they thought that this was government waste, fraud, mismanagement, it was important to cut back on that. Uh, If we'd had a better capacity to respond to the disease, uh, well, we might have been able to contain it earlier than we did. Uh, We might have been able to contain it. The efforts to contain it completely failed. But part of that was because there's this crucial aspect of infrastructure that went away. But there's all sorts of infrastructure that comes from government. For instance, you know, you and I are talking right now because there's this thing called the internet that was developed by government scientists. That you know, quite a lot of the components and the computers that you and I are speaking with were developed by basic government research. And more generally, we're able to sit where we are without worrying about bandits coming in and killing us because government does quite a lot of the time a pretty good job at protecting us from those things. Uh, We're also likely to live longer because toxic chemicals that would be in our food and water and air uh, have been taken out because the Environmental Protection Agency is doing
0: its job. See, I would say, going back to it, it is interesting in regards to, let's say, air pollution. That's that's one spot where I'll give my father-in-law credit uh, from my liberty philosophy point of view. I did say that air pollution is a tricky one to nail down because very often in the libertarian philosophy, it's, of course, who is to blame for these things. You can take actions to restrict chemicals from going in the water. You can find the source of the spills. You can trace it back and then take action to eliminate those people from well, utilizing. Well,
1: who is the chem- you if not government?
0: Well, that's the, well in a libertarian society, you probably know this, the option would be to look to outside sources for adjudication of these matters. Now, you know, from the enforcement perspective, we do live in a governmental society, right? So at this point in time, that would be government. But I want to take a step backwards because we talk about freedoms in general, right? You talk about the position we find ourselves in with the economic aspects of inflation, of uh, the debt ceiling. So from my perspective, I would argue that government has put us in the position where we are now possibly going to default it'll never happen but let's say potentially could default leading to all sort of catastrophic results I would argue that the government, excess spending, has put us in a position that would result in that wherein they should never have been close to a position of default. And the fact that we continuously uh, think that this monetary system is fungible, that we can consistently print money, which is damaging to people, concretely damaging to people from their ability to save, their ability to spend, their ability to forecast their future needs, that to me would seem to indicate a far greater danger to freedom than, say, the printing of millions of dollars to go to a war across the world, like, for example, Ukraine currently. Mm -hmm. So where do you come on that? I mean, isn't government to blame for putting us in the position in the first place? And yet your solution is that government has to get it out of us. I mean, it's a little bit of a catch-22 well
1: uh truth the United States for the last hundred years has had uh you know this very big uh very intrusive government you know large uh, bureaucracies. Thousands of employees, uh, you know, at the uh, very powerful central bank. Uh, it is also the case for the, for the last just about 100 years, the United States has been one of the best places for human beings to live in human history. Now, it's always possible to take any existing regime and compare it unfavorably with the fantasy regime that you conjure up in your head. And existing regimes can't possibly defend themselves against that. But if we look at actually existing regimes, it's hard to do better than this regime with its big government. And quite a lot of the benefits of capitalism, which libertarians tend to be big fans of, uh, arises from the fact that we've got a very good legal system. We've got a good system for controlling externalities. We can fantasize some other way of dealing with pollution. But, you know, we do a pretty good job of it here. Uh, and so... Uh, I guess, uh, you know, I don't find the United States uh, all that oppressive. Uh, There are lots of other places in the world
0: you can go right
1: now that uh, I'm confident you will find more oppressive.
0: Well, I mean, I would agree with you wholeheartedly there. It is is something – it's easy to take it for granted without a doubt. But I guess it's always the warning – of what could happen because we look at some of the Mm -hmm. ways in which our country is progressing. We look at some Mm -hmm. of the ways in which they're overreaching with domestic spying apparatus. We look at how they're overreaching in regards to even the way Mm -hmm. in which the political operatives behind the scenes. We're looking right now at some of the, I guess, you know, again, spying the, uh, the recent news Mm -hmm. about the Hunter Biden and FBI, kind of cover-ups, obfuscation. I don't know if you've seen the most recent coming out with the Durham report. It just dropped today, so I I don't expect you to have read all 300 pages. I certainly have not. But but, um, the point being, it looks like we are going down the pathway of excess government leading us more towards the outcomes that some of these other nation states that we say, that is what we don't want. The China, for example, in regards to the control, the information flow, and the – I guess, I mean, looking as the populace, not so much as the people they're supposed to protect, but instead the people that they need to protect from information, Mm -hmm. the truth, or as I would say, freedom.
1: (laughs) There are certainly lots of abuses. I'm not going to defend everything that government does. I am just uh, saying that government versus non-government, is really too crude a way to think about it. Uh, I mean, you know, if you go into the hospital, uh, hospitals are dangerous places. There are lots of diseases you are more likely to get in a hospital than not in a hospital because hospitals are full of germs and they're full of diseases. But if somebody says, well, in order to preserve your health, you should never under any circumstances let anyone take you into a hospital is bad advice. There are circumstances in which it's real, what you really need to you really want to do that. So what you want to do is, you know, and, you know, the best hospitals are doing this in a much more articulated, detailed way, try to figure out what are the causes of people acquiring diseases in hospitals. And let's figure out how to change those particular aspects of hospital procedure so that they don't happen. And to the extent that there are specific abuses of government, and we're trying to control those, Look, you know, I teach constitutional law, we're concerned about rights, we're concerned about equality, there's a pretty robust body of law with respect to both of those things. That's one of the reasons why government in the United States can't do the things that government does do in China, the courts wouldn't go along with it.
0: Well, I think that's one of the issues, too, that gets raised, isn't it, though, is that so many times we do see that the courts exist, but by the time the courts find out about something being done, Uh it's often too late. By the time the courts weigh in on Uh something, I mean, uh, the COVID response is a good example of this with Uh um, the coercion to get vaccines. Now, Uh this was struck down by the Supreme Court, but not until after hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people had lost their jobs or were coerced into getting the vaccine, which was later found to be unconstitutional. So that's the kind of thing where you look at the power of government and you say, okay, this has gotten too much and now is infringing on our freedoms. And our court system isn't simply adequate enough or fast enough to catch up. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, Well, with uh, respect to COVID, uh, the hypothesis of clumsy and inefficient government in some ways was vindicated. By the COVID episode. The Centers for Disease Control, very early on, came up with its own test for the disease, which was no good, and they wouldn't let anybody else develop a test. And all Mm. the classic arguments about stupid, inefficient bureaucrats were vindicated in a big way with catastrophic results. It's also the case, though, that without government coordination and massive government spending, we wouldn't have gotten the vaccine. Because it just was too risky for private industry to invest the millions of dollars, given the very serious danger that the research wouldn't pan out. So you see both the best and the worst of government in uh, the COVID uh, episode. I will say with respect to compelled vaccination, uh, there actually was no place in the United States where people were compelled to be vaccinated in the same way that people were compelled to be vaccinated for smallpox in the early 20th century. Some people were told that it's a condition of having your job. If you're going to have this job, you have to be vaccinated. Uh, and uh, I think that you can take the libertarianism too far here. Justice Gorsuch resisted the idea that people who are dealing with frail old patients in nursing homes need to be vaccinated for the disease. But this is seriously endangering vulnerable people. I think it's reasonable to tell people if you're going to deal with frail old people, you can't be a transmitter of the disease.
0: But I think that's where it broke down a bit. And we're getting a little bit into the weeds on the topic, but such is the nature of Uh, these My
1: my claim is we always go into the weeds. Into the weeds is where we belong, (laughs) not broad, crude generalizations about government versus not government.
0: No, I agree. Well, and I think that's where, you know, from Gorsuch's perspective, I think he was arguing more so that it was the fact (coughs) that many of these people – would already have natural immunity which would provide them with better immunity f- than the vaccine would so it was kind of a redundancy that was unnecessary in re- in the context of taking care of these elderly yeah, citizens so those I
1: believe that just had religious objections their natural immunity was neither here nor there
0: well it just wasn't part that, that of that was claim. I've read the that paper. was there yeah I will say yeah. to your point that yeah. was that was the claim although there was in fact that that argument as well but mm-hmm. let's let's change for a second because there's one thing And I agree, I don't think that it's a great idea to compare Mm -hmm. no government and government because it simply is, number one, unbelievably difficult for people to wrap their heads around a complete absence of government. But there is an example that I always find interesting in that so many times somebody will bring up Somalia to somebody like me and say, well, look at what happened with Somalia. What a tragedy. And when you actually dive into it, though, it surprisingly wasn't. Now, that's not to say there wasn't infrastructure laid out by having a government previously in the in Somalia but when the actual government disappeared for you know 20 years there were certain outcomes that were worse for example mm-hmm. a very important one which is access to potable water that was mm-hmm. impacted because you didn't have government running it mm-hmm. and they didn't have a private institutions that took over it fast enough but other Examples, people's income levels went up, uh, oddly enough, literacy went up. People found the way to make things work, to develop the communities, to find educational outcomes and, and feed the people without that government. So when you look at something like that, what is your perspective seeing the operation in the absence of government and how people found a way to make it work regardless?
1: Well, what you get, uh, I mean, one thing that you cannot get rid of is violence. People, Mm. there are going to be means of violence. What happens when central government breaks down is that you get different geographical areas, each controlled by their own warlord. And uh, if you are within the area protected by a warlord, you know, you can be pretty safe. The warlord is going to extract whatever he wants to out of taxation, and the warlord and his minions can do pretty much whatever they like to you uh so uh you know it is really unfortunate if you have a pretty daughter that's <laughs> not going to work out well but you know there are lots of sources of uh security in that situation but it's better to have an impartial legal system that has reliable control over a given geographical area so that uh, the average police officer can't Take your money and rape your daughter and uh, do that with impunity because he's the person in control. It's better to have laws.
0: I would agree. What I, I think that it's always having laws. I think also exists within a libertarian or even an anarchist framework because it, depending on what your society is, we're not all living on our own. Typically, mm-hmm. I think people presume that far too often. I'm not saying that you are. I'm saying in typical. People presume when you talk about anarchy or libertarianism, it's a guy living on his own in the woods, you know, skinning squirrels and eating them over a fire. It's not the case. No, no, of no you people still have-
1: organize it's You basically right. get feudalism. There are different sources right. of armed power, each of the sources. Some of them are nicer than others, but uh, you've got multiple sources of armed power. It's not good for capitalism because it's dangerous to trade between the different See- areas.
0: That's where I don't know if I agree with that or not necessarily, because I would think that if anything, it would make trade a little bit easier because you don't have restrictive barriers in place. You have Mm -hmm. simple human needs that would supersede Mm -hmm. any issues with trading. Now security could be an issue, but. You would have private institutions to hire to take care of that your security, mm-hmm. similar to what they had, honestly, in the old West. I always think of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, one of my favorite films, mm-hmm. where Butch and Sundance are guarding the, I think it was the miners getting, mm-hmm. you know, getting their gold ducats. But yeah. you would have answers to that. But I think that it would actually open up for far more freer trade, and also, you know, we are now in, a, in an environment where you do have quite a bit more technological advancement than in the old mm-hmm. drive your buggy across the state line days to trade, and. Well, the way I look at it is one of the issues I was going to ask you about is the economic impact of these regulations, these restrictions on business. And I know, you know, in regards to taxes, just recently, we were talking about some tax cuts. Well, those have been rolled back. And one of the big tax issues I was just talking one of our listeners about was that businesses that are doing research and development now have to amortize losses over a five-year period. Now, this is devastating. Yeah to many small businesses, devastating to research and development, devastating to anybody that doesn't have a Google level, Mm -hmm. you know, cash cow to, to really battle with. And I look at that and I say, it's hard for me to understand how our government is not making us less free by crushing this business environment, by having all of these restrictions and bonuses, or I'm sorry, burdens on people that they're facing and that they have to keep in mind, which gets in the way of evolution, development, product rollouts, trade and mm-hmm. everything else. So what are, are your thoughts
1: back on that? in the weeds. Uh, the the <laughs> large question is whether it is good to have a tax system at all, which goes back to the question whether it's good to have government at all. If you're going to have government, then the money's got to come from someplace and then you uh, want a tax system. And uh, you know, I don't think that any sane person can defend every provision of the Internal Revenue Code. <laughs> but and I'm certainly not going to try to do that. There are particular aspects of the code that badly need to be reformed. But uh, the question of whether or not to have government, I mean, you know, this experiment has been tried. But one of the things that uh, Adam Smith says in The Wealth of Nations is uh, in order to have the benefits of economic growth and free trade, people have to feel secure that bandits or their lords, their feudal lords, aren't going to come and take away the surplus. The only way in which we get pe- give people an incentive to try to grow their own wealth and trade with other people is if they feel secure in what they've got. And it's hard to do that without an impersonal system of
0: justice. I would say that it's hard to feel, even in our current system, very secure in what you've got. I think that's one of the issues that people have with the big government we've gotten. And the system of justice, I think, at this point in time, people do feel is a little bit biased in its application, not only in economic matters, but in matters of of violence. I mean, we're seeing what's happening right now with Jordan Neely and Daniel Penny on the subway. But let me go back to ask you this what would be your optimum size or optimal size of government because for me i obviously think it's far too large i think that it can do with some pruning and heavy pruning for that matter to, that would increase our freedom what is I your th- optimal size I of think government it's
1: just too crude a question we need to talk about particular things that particular gov that uh, particular agencies are doing. So I mean, would go back to the Environmental Protection Agency. There's no question that pollution counts as a kind of aggression against other people. Uh, so uh, you know, even if you have a minimal conception, people have an obligation not to hurt other people. If my factory is spe- spewing poison and it's hurting other people, then I should be stopped from doing that. But it's very hard to prove that any particular particle is causing harm to any particular person. That's why the legal tort system can't possibly provide a remedy. Nobody can prove a harm. The only way in which you can control this is to have scientists trying to figure out what are the toxic effects of this or that uh, emission, and then uh, do a cost-benefit analysis and try to figure out whether this emission is doing more harm than good, and if it's doing more harm than good, to stop it. But in order to do that, you need a really big, expensive scientific bureaucracy to try to figure out what are the effects of this or that chemical. So even that minimal description of government as preventing harm to people is going to require a mighty big and expensive bureaucracy.
0: Uh, it's an interesting. I mean, I can see where you're coming from in regards to saying that who's going to foot the bill for the expense. I would argue that from a communal point of view, if you have a community that's being impacted, they could gather the money to hire a service that could then undertake this investigation. But again, who decides whether the cost to benefit in, to outlaw it? Uh, as that's with a, many that's things, you've know, you got a free rider down.
1: problem. I mean, you can just as well say, we shouldn't charge admission for the bus. We should let anybody who ride the bus. Uh, and if the community wants there to be buses, they'll all voluntarily pay. Because you, you couldn't imagine everybody riding for free on the bus and expecting everybody else to pay. Well, you adopt that philosophy and you're not going to have a bus system pretty soon.
0: See, uh, I would disagree a with a that, though, fundamentally. I think that it might do... Ju- might be a different type of bus system. They might be smaller, they might be more streamlined, they might be more effective even. But I also think about on a flip side, when you're talking about the impact and it's hard to prove the impact of the particles in the air, I was just laughing myself a little bit mentally here because I'm also thinking about the different aspect of government, which is, of course, the military industrial complex. And we've been Mm -hmm. talking about protection from warlords and bandits abroad and all that. Mm -hmm. But it's also funny to me because we've got this massive military industrial complex. We've got hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands of troops and hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. of advisors to those troops. And yet we're basically being sold what I would look to as The argument that the EPA is making, except they're telling us, well, there's these particulates out there that are that are hating you. Right. These particulates over here hate you and we have to go and we have to take care of them at all times. But really, it's hard for us to discern what tangible impact they may have on us domestically. When we Mm -hmm. talk about, again, the actions in Ukraine, any of the actions in the Middle East, the fight them over here or fight them over there. It's very amorphous. And I guess that's one of the issues I have with a big government system is that so many things of what they do employ so many people, so many special interests, Mm -hmm. and that their interests very often do not seem to intersect in any way with my interest, nor any interest of anybody I would ever come across Mm -hmm. in real life. Mm -hmm. So thoughts on that? Well, the military-industrial
1: complex is real. Uh, at the same time, the world has become a much more peaceful and less violent place since World War II. And it's done that because there is one country that has dominated the world and made the world, in effect, a free trade zone. Now, there are right now powerful actors who would like to move back to, once again, a feudal model in which different uh, countries manage to militarily dominate their neighbors and gobble up their neighbors. Uh, And uh, I don't think that it would be good for America and for American prosperity to be in that kind of dangerous world. And that's one of the questions that is being decided right now in Ukraine and is in danger of being decided in Taiwan. Uh, it is the case uh, that the United States is located on the planet Earth and we can't move it someplace else. So we really do have to be aware of what's going on around us.
0: Well, I guess I will say we do have to be aware of what's going on around us. I concur. I concur. It just does seem that we have been involved in everything going on around us for so long that it's hard to and really we got rich
1: and we got really rich at the same time. I don't think that those are unrelated.
0: I think well, I would argue that we got really rich in advance of us becoming this this massive world power, and uh, actually, as a benefit of probably World War One when everybody else was in shambles, and the United States was able to. Really take advantage of the fact that yeah, manufacturing but- was destroyed, that so many other countries had to rebound from utter destruction, and, and even into World War II, because... Uh. But here look at home,
1: look at how much richer the United States has just gotten since 1970. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you can go look up the GNP uh, figures. We're fabulously richer than we were then. And that's 30 that 25 years after World War II. Well, you know, true. By that t- by that time, Europe had pretty well industrialized, and the United States has grown at a much faster rate than Europe.
0: True. I mean, I think that the advancements of capitalism also helped us quite a bit there, mm-hmm. and we'll yeah. see world world. I mean, worldwide, the the wealth has increased, the standard of living has massively increased, mm-hmm. and I would give capitalism a lot of credit for that, uh, and the adoption of capital. Yeah,
1: but the capitalism but, is related to the fact that uh, you know you can put a shipping container on a boat and send the boat halfway around the world, and it is extremely unlikely that pirates are going to intercept it.
0: I agree. I agree with you. Um, And I guess that is more in line with, would you say that the United States can take credit for that with big government? Or you think that that's involved with just countries worldwide, acknowledging the fact that free trade is vital and has to be protected as a matter of national interest? Um, I guess the argument there would be that you have to have an existing Navy to do so. My argument, of course, would be that you would have private contractors that companies would hire to protect those boats. Mm-hmm. But I guess oh, we can agree that that capitalism and free trade have benefited us regardless. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: we're, we're disagreeing about the pre the presuppositions of capitalism and free trade. Uh, yep. It helps to be able to call the cops.
0: It does help to be, well, again, I'm not going to make the same argument about privatization, yep. but so let's, let's talk then, uh, before we get into this, this tidbit about Northwestern, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit more about, so, when you came up with the concept as we're talking about of less government means less freedom, how did you come to the real is this something you've always felt? Is this something that you had came to realize in writing the last book and analyzing the circumstances? How did you really come to that specific worldview? Because you seem to have you're defending it well. Mm-hmm. Um, but what won you over to that point of view where where? and do you look at in your everyday life? I'm very curious about this in your everyday life. Do you look at that philosophy and say, you know what? I'm going to tell myself that this is the answer. And I, in everything I do and everything that pisses me off that the government does find, find a way to rationalize that.
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'll say it again. I've said it before. I am not defending everything that government right. does, uh, in the same way that, you know, I'm, uh, I'm glad that the hospital is there. I'm not blessing the hospital every day, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the uh, I mean, the fact that my children have survived into adulthood is related to the fact that there are hospitals. So, uh, right. but you know, hopefully, you can go for years without needing it. Um, so, uh, I came round to this view because, as I said, I got interested in libertarianism because I wrote about the healthcare case. The big question raised by the healthcare case is whether government ought to use taxation in order to provide medical care for people who can't afford it. And redistribution is the other large issue that uh, divides me from uh, the libertarians. So I looked at the arguments for uh, shrinking government, and some of them are based on abstract principles, some of them are based on consequences. And after looking at them carefully, I concluded that none of them are very good. Uh, The ones about consequences are sometimes good at retail, and it's possible to point to particular government agencies, you know, sometimes that shouldn't exist. Airlines used to be regulated by the Civil Aeronautics Board, which was just a complete uh, corrupt uh, you know, drag on the economy. It's good that it's gone. The Interstate Commerce Commission used to regulate and restrict interstate trucking, economic disaster. It's a good thing that we put a stop to that. But uh, we're back to talking at retail. What uh, the Libertarians offer is uh, more broad. You know, We've just got to shrink government generally, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's going to make us freer. Just going back to healthcare, uh, I am not as free to live the life that I want to live if I die of an easily preventable disease.
0: I would agree that libertarians, it's a very valid critique. And I have the same critique, to be honest, something I'm actually working on, trying to work on myself for a a book that I'm writing on, giving more concrete examples of solutions that libertarians could have rather than Mm -hmm. simply shrink the size of government. Because I do think it's something vital to talk about and people need to believe in that if they're going to Mm -hmm. subscribe to a philosophy. I would say... In regards to healthcare or some of these other issues, though, where the breakdown for me happens is that I looked at some of the historical examples of the past for healthcare, where you would have guilds or you'd have community doctors. And because of the involvement in government, you have prices skyrocketing. And then you have people look and say, well, there's only one way to solve it. This is government because it's so expensive and we have to take care of these people who many Mm -hmm. times were taken care of uh, Mm -hmm. in a different way, again, with communities, with guilds, with places for workplace employment. but." I looked at the outcomes and the prices of it, and it still seems that it's so inept and we're just spending so much money and growing the bureaucratic side of these things so massively year over year with results that would not and should not correspond with the amount of money, time, effort, theoretically being put towards them. So that to me seems to be an argument in the opposite direction. Well, yes, you can say we're not dying. We still have a hybrid healthcare system, part Mm -hmm. capitalist, part socialist, Mm-hmm. Yes, we have the highest cancer survival rates in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it going to be expensive? You're damn right. It's going to be expensive. Mm-hmm. So to me, the outcomes still don't justify putting mm-hmm. that much control in the hands of government. And that comes through to education, mm-hmm. military, you know, many of these other instances.
1: Yeah. So, so- I, But I just go back to at retail and, you know, lots of aspects of the healthcare system. And clearly, you know, there's an awful lot of waste here. Uh, and, you know, lots of opportunities for reform, which uh, I think Obama wanted to just broaden coverage, decided not to do very much to take care of anything else because he thought he barely had the votes to broaden coverage, which turned out to be accurate. But uh, with respect to the fact that, you know, we are much better at curing cancer than we used to be, you know, it's just amazing. So let's suppose that the person who cleans my office uh, gets cancer, and uh, well uh, or I, well that person has a job at Northwestern which uh, has pretty good health insurance but let's suppose that the, you know the person's an independent contractor you know, by their uh, own insurance uh, or you know let's just say can't afford insurance uh, which was a growing part of the population Um what exactly are they supposed to do? This is not like in 1900 where you could go to a doctor and the doctor would take you on as a charity case. Medical care was pretty cheap in 1900. It's fantastically it expensive today.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, and again, I kind of go back to my point, though, is that the, why is it so expensive? I would argue that government involvement has really skyrocketed those prices, which again, what infringes on things- your ability to have care.
1: Well, one of the things that's made it so expensive is that we're pouring enormous amounts into research. There is no way in which that new cancer cure is not going to be expensive because it took millions of dollars to develop it. And that money has to come from somewhere. I can't sure. blame
0: government for that. Well, I see, I can't because the, the, the amount of money it costs to get to the FDA approval process is astronomical, which, again, is even a when, lot of your own Even if there RD
1: were costs. no FDA it's expensive to develop cures for cancer. It's not like we developed the cure for cancer and that cost us $5. And then we spent millions on the FDA.
0: Well, I mean, of course, and it's going to be expensive. expensive. Of course. Okay, so let's segue into real quick. Uh, we'll wrap up. Anything Anything you want to add to finish this? Because I said, I do want to talk really briefly about this Northwestern issue with James Lindsay coming to visit the campus. Um, anything mm-hmm. more you want to add just to wrap up our earlier conversation? To put a um, bow on it,
1: <laughs> um, uh, I, I guess the, the takeaway of the book, uh, you know, so far we've been talking about objections to government that come from idealists like you, who really, you know, I think want human beings to flourish and want, uh, yeah, I think your basic orientation is broadly egalitarian, and you just think that human beings will uh, be better off if we shrink government. But the way that this operates in practice is that you end up getting support from people who just would make more money if they were allowed to pollute uh, or who make more money if they are allowed to maintain, uh, the uh, restriction, the kinds of, uh, injuries, uh, want to endanger their workers, uh, want to endanger the public. And so when I talk about delusion and greed, uh, The way in which libertarianism actually operates in American politics is as a coalition between idealists who are trying to bring about a better world and corrupt business people who would like to be able to hurt people without being bothered by the police.
0: And I think that most of the politicians are already corrupt people that are Interested in not being bothered by the police (laughs) (laughs) on both sides of the aisle. (laughs) So anyway, okay. thank you for that. Let's really quickly uh, talk about this issue with James Lindsay coming to visit Northwestern's campus. Now, I was reading a bit about this, and you may know more or less than, than what I've read, but it seems that... The student government now has decided they will not be funding or not permitted, not permitting the Republicans on campus to host events or gain funding any longer because of a poster, I think, that was published Mm -hmm. in advance of a James Lindsay event, which was a spin off of a book cover. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, what I mean, was there a protest around it? Is this just a reactionary development from student government? And what are your thoughts on on Um, how this is all playing out and the impact it may have on the campus?
1: It's hard for your audience to judge it without seeing the image, but I'll hmm. say uh broadly that uh, there is, uh, you know, I'm trying, I'm a liberal here. I'm trying to defend a government that enables people to live the lives they want. There are tendencies on the left that are opposed to free speech and think that there are some ideas that are so offensive that they ought not to be tolerated. And so I've been fighting that as well Uh, because uh if we're going to think, of, well, if we're going to think about politics, we've got to be able to encounter viewpoints that we think are wrong, misguided, even destructive. Uh, you know, some of us think that it's interesting to encounter ideas like that. It's just good to be aware of what's going on in the world. But this is part of a broader tendency on the left to restrict speech that they don't like. It's a very destructive tendency. Ultimately, I, when I speak to this about my friends on the left, I say if you are not able to learn and engage with the arguments on the other side, that makes you stupid and it mm-hmm. makes you a less effective advocate for your own position because sooner or later you're going to encounter somebody who articulately presents views that uh, you don't agree with, and you won't have had any practice engaging with that person, and then
0: you're going to lose, and that would be bad. Right. Steel versus steel. Steel start from steel, essentially. Yeah. I, I, Yeah, I, it's great to hear you say that. I had a follow-up question in that it does seem to me that a lot of places of higher learning, some some more prominent than others. I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of the most recent one. It may have even been Stanford, who I know had some mm-hmm. very uh, worrisome aspects uh, of free speech. At Stanford,
1: speech. Uh, a uh, federal judge, a uh, quite conservative federal judge came to speak, and there was a protest that shut him down. And uh, I wrote a piece uh, that in the Chronicle of Higher Education that essentially said what I just said to you. Oh, wonderful.
0: Yeah. and it, But it seems, I, and I give their credit to the dean, I believe, at the law school. I mm-hmm. think she actually stood up and said, this is unacceptable. Oh, she and- sent
1: a letter to the uh, university community explaining mm-hmm. that this wasn't going to be allowed to happen
0: again. Yeah, and I'll tell you, that is very refreshing to see because mm-hmm. it did seem like the environment in educational campuses was to let these things go. And it seems that that may be reversing itself. Do you feel that that's it varies from one of the school
1: to another? But uh, yeah, I, I think that there is a reaction against it, and it's a good thing. Yeah, most definitely.
0: Well, Professor Koppelman, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time and joining me. And we'll see. I, I am going to get your book and read it. I'm very curious to see it. And maybe we'll uh, I'll contact you to have some more in the weeds arguments after having uh, read a little bit more in depth of what your, uh, your writings are on the issue. But can you tell everybody where to find you, where to read you, where you'd uh, like people so, to visit uh, you? I have
1: a website, andrewkoppelman.com. Uh, there is uh, the name, K-O-P-P-E-L-M-A-N uh and uh so uh it's easy enough to find the book uh and order it
0: and it's cheap yeah and, and it burning down the house was the name taken from the talking Heads song i'm a huge fan of talking <laughs> <Yeah>. heads <laughs> yeah. gotta love it all right well right. Uh, again thank you so much professor Kaufman have a I wonderful do. rest of your day you now- Yes, I shall. So that's it from me, Brian McWilliams from Professor Koppelman here and from Mean Age Daydream. Guys, have a wonderful rest of your day and remind you to keep those electric eyes on me, babe, and keep that ray gun to my <laughs>